Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Bookshelf Sisters podcast. My name is Christina and I'm doing this podcast with my sister Mary, who will be talking in a second. Right, Mary, what are we what book are we talking about this time? Hello everybody, I'm Mary and this month we had a look at the book Scavengers, which strictly speaking isn't a young adult fiction, it is actually classed as a middle grade fiction. Um, targeted towards the top end of middle grade, 10 plus. So Mary, what was it that made you keen to choose this particular one, given it wasn't a young adult uh, fiction book? I think it was because I read it myself. I was interested to have a bit of feedback on it. I knew that one of uh, my students that I used to teach had read it and was interested in doing uh, joining as part of the book club at some point. And I'd also mentioned it to another mum who had uh, a 12 year old daughter. So who, who has also bought quite a few books from me. So I thought it would be a good one to choose to get some actual age relevant feedback on it. I must admit that when you first mentioned it, it didn't really grab my fancy. But um, I persevered to read it. And um, yeah, you'll hear what I think in a bit. So Mary, do you want to give a summary of what it was all about? Okay, well, the book's called Scavengers and there's quite a clue in the title. Um, It's actually about a young boy who lives with this man in, we're not quite sure where to start with. And it's quite a, sort of descriptive start to the book i know i could give a lot of spoilers in this in this whole podcast but i'm going to try and do it without giving everything away so people still want to read it but certainly um you're not quite sure where he is initially i think particularly the younger people who read it were not sure i think pretty quick most of the adults had decided that he was probably somewhere very bleak and as it was described it sounded like a rubbish tip so the first few chapters deal with him sort of moving around the place where he lives lots of description you're not sure whether it's set in maybe current times or another environment altogether is it another world is it an alien world but he Although he has lots of animal traits, he sounds quite human. And uh, you find that he, this boy is living with a man who is very dictatorial about the rules of where they live. And he's actually told the boy that he must be really careful not to be seen because um, there's enemies outside. So that's the sort of little introduction. Would you like any more, Chris? One thing I was going to say is I think one reason of why um, people had a reasonable idea about where it might be set is because the name of the main character is Landfill. And so that sets up some expectations of what kind of um, environment we're in. But I think it's described in a way that um, is quite inventive does give you the opportunity to think that although this is probably some kind of landfill site 
where is it? When is it? Has there been some terrible catastrophe that has changed the world? Why are these rules um, in place? Is the world outside, as um, the one of the characters suggests, a place of big danger? So it does set it up in a, I think, quite a clever way. And when we had the discussion on it, we talked about quite a lot of different aspects of it. There was a few people that hadn't completely finished reading it as well. So we were trying not to give, initially to give everything away. Sort of some of the first things I asked really was sort of your first thoughts. I mean, I thought it conjured up the smells and the revoltingness of the place quite effectively with the description. Um, We weren't sure whether this boy was being held there initially at the start under duress or whether he was sort of free to do what, you know, whether he was actually sort of enjoying it or sort of feeling. And I think as the book went on, you certainly got the feeling that the two characters did care for each other, even though they had quite a, a sort of difficult relationship. The boy was really challenging and questioning the rules and one of the sort of things that we talked about quite a lot was how old we thought he was and we had quite a bit of uh, disagreement on that actually some of us thought he seemed older than others I personally thought he was probably um, sort of probably about 12-ish about to sort of go into adolescence about to that time when you actually do start to question a lot more, why am I doing this? You know, you always told me to do this, but why do I need to do it? And also in the story, he discovers a few things which makes him question this more. Whereas I was somewhat of the opposite opinion. After, when I was reading the book, I took it that he was probably around 12, like Mary said. But when I started thinking about it, I thought, no, actually, he's a lot younger uh, or he feels a lot younger. And I think he would have started questioning a lot earlier than age 12 for a lot of the things he questions. I don't know, Mary, what, do you know when, what is a big questioning age of children? I, I'm sure you're right that 12 is, but I think the sort of things he's coming across, he would have questioned earlier. I mean, it was certainly the bit about, you know, where he comes from. And he'd always been told that he was a seed, part of a seed. And then one day he discovers that uh, some of the animals, because there's animals living in this place, um, they he'd always been told that they got... Um, uh, it was a swelling sickness, something like it. that. Yeah, <laughs> a swelling sickness. And that he had to keep away from them when he had the swelling sickness because it was dangerous. But one day he, he went back to visit the animal that he told Bagaboo had had the swelling sickness. And he saw some little puppies being born and he realised that the swelling sickness all this time was actually not a sickness, but it was actually babies being born. And I think Bagaboo used to destroy a lot of the babies because the place would have come overrun and overgrown 
uh, well, not overgrown, but overrun with all these animals. So I think Bagabo used to destroy a lot of the babies. He doesn't explicitly say that in the book, but you get that impression. It does, actually. He says towards the end that he has to keep the population of the place down by killing these extra animals. Otherwise, none of them would be able to survive. He's very much, Bagaboo sounds horrible. And I know that one of the readers thought he was very horrible and a lot of people didn't understand him. But you can see in the story that they do have a really, a sort of, like a father and child relationship. They they take the mickey out of each other. They have in-jokes, they have their own little language. And it's very entertaining in that respect. And it's quite interesting to follow. Yeah, I think one of the things that people suggested was not, it was a far not so much a father and son relationship as a big brother, tough love kind of relationship. And I wasn't totally convinced by that. I, when I was reading it, I imagined him as, I don't suppose this is a programme you watch, Mary, it's called The Boys, and there's a character called Billy Butcher in it, and he's quite hard, but also will do anything for the people he actually loves. And I kind of thought that was where we were coming from with Bagaboo. But then I just didn't understand what his motivation would be for hiding so much stuff from landfill, especially stuff that he would need to survive, which, again, sorry to go back to it, that possibly fits in with my theory of landfill being a bit younger because maybe he didn't think he was ready to hear this stuff yet. Um, there's also a feeling that maybe um, Bagaboo is a bit mentally unstable. I think there's some evidence of that. But on the other hand, he's also a well-read man. So why does he try to so hide so much from a landfill? Um, why does he not, if he loves reading, why does he not teach him to read? So those were kind of questions that came to me. But on the other hand, I think he is a very compelling and interesting character. And in a sense, he has to be the way he is to make the story work the way it does. <laughs> so perhaps that's sufficient reason. Yeah, he's very disturbed, isn't he? I mean, you described mm-hmm. him as quite cantankerous. He'd lose his temper mm-hmm. one minute and then obviously he'd be really sorry. And he'd sort of try and apologise and do something to make up for it. And it really shouldn't be on the child to have to deal with that. It should, the adult it should be the one that, that deals with child's sort of mixed emotions, not the other way around. And I think that's where, um, when he sees Landfill growing up and questioning him, that kind of triggers for him all the things that he was trying to escape by building his own world for him and Landfill. And he can't quite cope with him getting older and wanting to know more about the outside world. And for, he's got this kind of ultimatum, either you're on my side or, on, or you're on the outside. And so that's almost the threat he uses that, you know, stick inside, stay in the rules or else it's going to be uh, trouble or maybe he'll chuck him out entirely. Mm. And it's, you know, you don't know how realistically that could happen. I I sort of wonder what the earlier life was like before we get to this point in time. Um, 
Well, for Bagaboo. Well, no, not for Bagaboo, for Landfill living in the site as a baby Uh, and how Bagaboo sort of looked after him then and what he was like growing up. And, you know, we're just looking at a moment in time and you might be right about him being a bit younger, but I still, some of the faults and decisions and things and the way he was thinking about things made me feel he was a little bit older. But I can see both points of view and certainly the audience we were pretty split on how old we thought he was actually and at the end of the day it obviously doesn't actually matter because um i think maybe people can imagine it at whatever whatever stage in his life it makes sense to them to think about it yes i agree with that actually i think there was a lot in there for discussion some great writing some really good description and lots of um points that you could certainly discuss with a class uh, of school children about what they thought about was going on and the descriptive language. Yeah, it's a lot of fun in the book, isn't there? It had yeah. a lot of fun with, with words. And somebody said, and I can see if I can find it. Neoisms, is that the word you're looking for? Uh, no, it isn't, but it's a good word. Neologisms, isn't it? Neologisms, yeah, I knew I could yeah. that. Here is what it is. Somebody said, and I can't remember whether this is one, I think it's one of the people at the club as opposed to um, the a, a byline on a book review. They said it's um, icky, poignant and compelling. Cool, <laughs> and I, I like thought that. That was a really good description. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it is quite icky, isn't it? Yeah. In lots of ways. Yeah, it's a, it could be quite a tough read. We were just discussing before we started this podcast. This could be a tough read for the age group it's aimed at, which it, Mary will tell you which years those are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, as I said, it's a, probably a 10 plus. So I think the people, the age group of students that would enjoy it most is probably year six, seven and eight maybe year five as well more mature year five class because they're they're all at that stage where they're questioning lots of things and questioning authority about things why do i have to do this i'm not just going to follow the rules and you know even in schools up to a certain stage they're quite happy to follow all the class rules but (laughs) get to a point where they think it's more fun to challenge them and do something else um and even the children that normally follow rules fairly passively start to get to the stage where they think, well, if it doesn't make sense to them, why should they do it? And uh, I think he's got to that point. He got to the point, why are they scared? What is going on outside? And then as he he has this place where he goes that Bagaboo doesn't really know about. It's sort of like a drain, I imagine, or something. And... Down there, there's an animal living, which... Can you remember what it was? A skunk or something like that? Um, I think it was a ferret. A sto- Well, whatever it was, a ferret, something like that. Um, and he, it appears in the book that he has this conversation with the ferret. And I think it's really just him and his conscience sort of talking, to, you know, and him questioning things in a in a different environment where he knows Bagaboo doesn't come and doesn't have any input into so he can and he can even sort of make up the replies because I don't think this animal really talks to him and I think go on then you're going to disagree 
No, not at all. I just think it's quite cleverly done and it's it's clearly meant to evoke um, the whole Garden of Eden tree of knowledge thing because although we learn later that it's a furry animal, it's it, I think it's called long white, so it's quite easy to imagine it as a snake and the snake or serpent is tempting Landfill to try things that um, he wouldn't do himself. And as Mary says, it's 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 not meant to be read that that's well. We don't think it's literally that that animal talked to him. It's more that within his environment, he is very much in tune with the animals. And I think at that point, he's projecting onto this um, animal some of the things that he doesn't dare think himself, but he wants to try out as ideas. So I thought those scenes were really very well done. Yeah, definitely. Um, and they were, and it was quite creepy as well. I think one of my, yeah, one of the groups sort of said that they felt that was really quite a creepy part of the book. Mm-hmm. And what did you think, Mary, of the other character in it? There's, um, there's a lot of dogs and animals, and there's Bagaboo, and there's Landfill, and then there's one other character, the only um, female character in in the story. <laughs> She was quite interesting as well because she was, uh, we're going to give a little bit of a spoilers away here, but she was from outside and... You don't need to give away too much to talk about her. No, but she, I was going to say, she discovers Landfill and she sort of like thinks, what, what's going on here? I'm... You know, I'm a bit worried about this. This is not normal. And, you know, maybe maybe I should do something to help, I think. But she also introduces him to some new things. Like she has uh, headphones, which she lets him have a listen to. And he hears music for the first time. And he's like, wow, what's this? And uh, she can't believe that he's, he's sort of like that. One of the girls said, actually, why is she being so horrible to him? I mean, I didn't necessarily think that, but obviously it came across uh, in the uh, sort of first reading at the point where she meets him that perhaps she was being a bit aggressive towards him in a way or not particularly, you know, not particularly friendly. I think he was actually kind of on the verge of attacking her. So I think there was a bit of tension between them. I did think that the book started to take off for me when she came because it began to move things on a little bit from the um, rather claustrophobic world that I'd been in up to that point in the book. But at the same time, I was a bit disappointed with that character because I suppose being the only... um, female in the book apart from some of the dogs I wanted her to be a bit different I wanted I'm, I'm always going on to Mary about gender balance and so for me I wanted her to be a similar age to Landfill and for them to have um, for her to be a bit more on his side now I know why the author probably didn't want to do this because that would then tip the book in a certain direction and it would would make it harder to keep his sense of the character not knowing who to believe, not knowing what's really happening. So I can appreciate that. 
But I also thought he was kind of dangling something that didn't happen and probably wasn't wasn't meant to happen. Uh, maybe Mary will explain these things to me. But you've got this whole thing where uh, there seems to be a lot of characters with lockets and keys and missing fat parents. So the girl that finds him says that she's lost her father and you just almost feel like these are characters trying to find each other but have some connection and then I still didn't understand and Mary maybe does why both Lamphill and Bagaboo had the same key yeah I don't I can't remember to be honest but I know what you mean about the girl but also what you mean about story taking off when she comes on because that is definitely the point that everybody said yes they need to get to the end and find out yeah. how it's going to finish where <laughs> yeah they could see that it was going somewhere then whereas up to mm-hmm. that point they weren't really sure even when they go to the spit pit outside and <laughs> landfill gets really frightened because he doesn't know you know he, he he's sort of what Bagaboo's told him about outside seems to be right and he can't, you know. But then he saw another glimpse of outside in a different direction that didn't chime in with it. So he's still confused. Even when he comes back, he's still confused. Um, it's quite it's, it's quite a, a moving story. I thought the girl's input was okay. I know what you mean. But you can't have necessarily every story with a an equal gender balance, can you? I don't see why you can't have another girl in this story and maybe a more similar age to Landfill. And well, I thought she was quite a similar age. <laughs> yeah, <of laughs> I, I'm I on the age of older. <laughs> I think she was quite a similar age and that's sort of why she was quite sort of shocked about it. Right. Yeah, no, you might be right. I suppose my main beef is what she did at the end of a story that I felt was not what... I felt that particular action of hers was not a good representation of women for both genders. <laughs> it's very much playing into a stereotype of what, what girls do compared to what boys do, and that's why I didn't like it. Okay, that's fair enough, actually, because she could have taken some different action, couldn't she? Yeah, yeah. She could exactly. have befriended him more and, and yeah, yeah, done something with which she might well have done if she played into the character that she sort of seemed to be at the when we first met her. I don't think she was ever any different from the character she was. Well, I think the fact that she was perhaps adopted or fostered and she'd had a bit mm-hmm. of a rough life herself. Yeah. She might have been a little bit more sympathetic and, like on his, like you say, on his side, possibly. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I, I sort of really thought it was a good read when I read it the first time, and I still thought it was a really good read the second time. It was a bit more icky the second time, actually. <laughs> was it? <laughs> it seemed pretty icky the first time. I <laughs> know, oh, but when you go back and read a book, you tend to read the descriptions of things perhaps a little bit more... You sort of forgot it after a while because of the way Landhill describes it as his little haven, that it doesn't say it seems so icky as you go through, I don't think. I mean, there were bits when they went outside onto the spit pit that were obviously quite icky. I think it was uh, just generally icky for the 
uh, the daily life of what they had to do. But that's understandable when you you're living somewhere without sanitary conditions. So <laughs> that's true. Um, yeah, that is true. So it doesn't it doesn't spare the. It's not kind of one of those books that um, glosses over the realities of life. And so I thought it was good from that point of view that, you know, it's it's allowing children to see, well, yeah, we obviously we've all got to go and um, do poos and whatever, and we've got to dispose of these things somewhere. And it's a bit of a survivalist life, really, where they have to, there's so many things they have to do to keep going. I mean, it's quite interesting that I think people who spend quite a lot of their lives I'm not sure where exactly, but in sort of um, the Far East, actually Mm -hmm. getting a lot of um, their sort of daily life is spent on rubbish tips. You're thinking of Slumdog Millionaire there, Mary, aren't you? Yeah. (laughs) But (laughs) but there's also, you know, that's a commentary on on the sum life, really, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That people do live like that. Yeah. I suppose it's bringing that sort of description of how life might be for some of them in not in the same way because obviously they're not living there protected from everybody else, but some of the the sort of roughness and you know bleakness of it all mm-hmm. uh, into this as well. Right, I would like to talk about the writers that were referenced in. The oh book. yeah, absolutely, yeah. No, because that was an interesting, one. and that's something that I didn't really pay much heed to the first time, and paid a little bit more heed to this time. Yeah. So basically, whenever um, Bagaboo decides that he wants to keep one of the animals, he gives them a name, but the names he gives them are references to writers that uh, presumably he liked. Well, I thought when I was reading, I thought, oh, yeah, that's quite nice. I know what a lot. We've got a goat called Kafka. We've got um, a little puppy called Orwell and so forth. So they were probably the most obvious ones because they had the biggest part in the book. But at the end of the book, um, Darren Simpson, the writer, does a list of all the writers' reference and he also does a little bit of says a little bit about them and I thought that was when I read that I thought oh um I don't know if I like that now I'm not is he just showing off about the writers that he's into um and then I think you Mary said well you know this is all part of um sharing his knowledge and um opening new doors for the children so I thought well that's fair enough I it's if I don't know if any of us younger children that actually read this would have looked at that but they might have done or if they do come across these writers they might um get to the point where they say oh gosh that was that was what that uh that dog was called or whatever so anyway i think, I I think they it. might have done yeah by the time they went to secondary school if they were looking yeah. at this in the in the first two years of secondary school certainly some of those authors names would start to be familiar yeah yeah so I had a look at what he'd written about them and I thought it was quite interesting. So he's got uh, Margaret Atwood, he talks about, says she's got eight, she wrote eight children's books. That's fair enough. They might want to read her children's books. But uh, so I Googled her children's books and the first one that came up was The Handmaid's Tale, which obviously isn't a children's book. But I think that's just the Margaret Atwood algorithms. That's not surprising. And 
And I also, I've just started rereading uh, one of her books called Oryx and Crake, which is also not a children's book, but it is a post-apocalyptic world with some very arbitrary rules. And so there was some parts of it that reminds me a little bit of Scavengers, so you can see where he's coming from with that. Then he mentions Angela Carter, who does magic realism and probably best known for Company of Wolves, uh, one of the the fairy tales that she reworked and was made into a, a film. But again, not really children's stories. And then he's got Herman Hess, which, to be fair, I definitely did read as a teenager. <laughs> Joyce the Squirrel was James Joyce. And having stalled about halfway through reading Ulysses, um, I still read enough to think there's a little bit of a touch of Leopold Bloom in Bagaboo. And certainly, James Joyce doesn't spare the details of icky things either. So, <laughs> but I think the most two most interesting ones were Kafka the goat, who is Bagaboo's best friend. He's kind of um, even if if Landfill's letting him down, it's like <laughs> he kind of uses Kafka almost as his friend against um, against Landfill if Landfill's misbehaving. And I think what's interesting also is that it's. I think Kafka also shows a little bit of um, of Bagaboo's character because in Kafka you've got all these things where there's arbitrary rules and that's why you end up with saying Kafka-esque. So I think partly he makes his own arbitrary rules and partly he's a victim of the uh, arbitrary rules that you get um, in society and that's why he's a bit of an outsider. So I thought Kafka really summarised and added to Bagaboo and in the same way, Orwell, who's Landfill's puppy, is probably characterises better Landfill. Less the kind of 1984 Orwell and more the Orwell, the, the socialist, the, the volunteer in the Spanish Civil War and so forth. You can just see that Orwell's heart is, is there in the same sort of place. And he's kind of got the antithesis of Bagaboo's survivalist mentality where you've got to kill off all the puppies and all the cripples and just so you can survive. But also the big brother thing maybe is a bit of a control yeah, element. Yeah, that's true. That is so, very true, well spotted. And then the rest of the book seemed even less, um, seemed quite tough reads. So he mentioned Salmon <laughs> Rushdie's Satanic Verses and Jonathan Swift, not so much uh, Gulliver's Travels as his uh, modest proposal about eating babies and um, Kurt Vonnegut's uh, Slaughterhouse-Five, which is about the bombing of Dresden. <laughs> and uh, then he's got a couple of uh, Virginia Woolf and um, Jeanette Winterson, who are probably less bleak, but maybe more complex to read. And I suppose the other good thing was that he did do a mixture of books by both men and women. But I have my doubts that Bagaboo was really a big... Virginia Woolf fan. I don't know. Just no, I think don't really see it. I think that now you've gone through all these, that these are yeah. probably like some of his influences. Yeah, uh, for sure. Over, over the years, sort of thing, yeah. and he's fed bits of them into this yeah. book, which is yeah, yeah it's very interesting good. actually. Yeah, so I do like it. Uh, right, so we've come out in favour of that. <laughs> yeah, at the end of the yeah. day. <laughs> I mean, it's not something necessarily that you would sort of discuss in any... Well, certainly not perhaps the detail we've just discussed it in with the children, but you might point out that these are all famous 
authors that yeah. have been quite influential and they've probably had an influence on Darren Simpson. Mm-hmm. Right. Is there more stuff you want to say about it, Mary? I'm probably not going to say any more. It was I, just to say though, it was represent. It was chosen for certainly different reading things. It was the winner of the Guardian's Fiction Prize, and I think it was also chosen as a summer read last year. And I've written something about it for Lab Twenty Twenty, seeing the eyes, the world through different eyes. It's sort of about. Uh, there's a books that help you have empathy with other people and other things. And I think that this book could be a sort of introduction into that. You know, not everybody's the same. How how mm-hmm. are we going to have empathy with others? So it's, it's sort of quite interesting from that point of view. And also that he has started, he is likely to have a new, in fact, I think he's got the new cover agreed for his new book but I don't think it's out yet. It's called The Memory Feeds, which sounds completely different. Yeah. So I'm not sure when that's actually due out. This is a little snippet that he's tweeted. The Memory Feeds, to give you an idea of what it's about, dark secrets and the purest escapism on a remote island with ever-receding tides. Available to review on NetGalley. So... Could be good. Yeah. Right, and what are we going to talk about next time, Mary? (laughs) All right, our new book is called The Supreme Lie by Geraldine McGoffran. Is that how you pronounce it? She's already written two books that have won the Clip Carnegie Prize. One quite a long time ago and one just when I started as an Osborne organiser. Where the World Ends. Her writing is beautifully written, and but this book doesn't seem to be anything like Where the World Ends. I've literally just picked it up today to have a little look to see what it's like, but I think it's going to be a very interesting read. So if anyone yeah. else would like to join in, I can't really tell. I it's it's The setting is to, it's definitely to do with fake news and environmental issues, so quite modern, I think. <laughs> but in a fantasy way. (laughs) Jolly good. Well, we'll talk more about that next time, I think. Okay, well, thank you very much, Chris. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. (laughs)